balcony and you're sweating, we're working on it. We've opened some windows and, and doors. If you're in the overflow, um, sorry you're sitting in overflow this morning. We do have a nine o'clock service. If, I was gonna say, I was gonna say if you're able to attend the nine, it's one way to serve those who aren't able. I wasn't poo-pooing the people that are sitting in overflow. I wasn't, you with me? Hey, it's really fun to see the uh, students with the red shirts on, um, serving as ushers this morning. Let me do a little exercise since our students are here. If you're uh, applied to go on a summer mission trip, would you just raise your hand nice and high, our summer, our students? Yeah, fun. Yay. Yeah, we're, we're eager to send you guys out. We have raised to date 25000 of $30,000 gold. Isn't that good? Yeah, we're excited about that. If you've not participated in the Red Envelope Project, there's still opportunity to do so. That is the project. It's in Rathbun. There are red envelopes on the wall. You pull down an, a number and you give to the student mission trip effort. As you pull down the number, that's the amount you're committing to give. And you can do that today or you can do it in the days ahead. So we're, we're only 5,000 away from 30,000. That'll help offset the needs of 135 high schoolers and junior hires going this summer on mission trips. So we're excited about that. If you're visiting, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here at Glowen Bible Church. I'm glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home. Turn with me. Let's all turn there together in our copy of the scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're making our way through this book slowly. If you're joining us for the first time, Deuteronomy is Moses' efforts to get Israel ready to go into the promised land. And he's getting them ready by revisiting the law. He's getting them ready to receive their inheritance from God, the land, by revisiting the law. And I should take this opportunity to point out that for us, as we make our way through life, and we want the inheritance that God has for us in Christ... A good way to prepare for that is to revisit the law of God. And so this morning it shouldn't be lost on us. This isn't simply an Old Testament issue. In fact, we'll see really clearly this issue is a New Testament issue as well. As Moses, Moses draws focus this morning on idolatry and God's prohibition against idolatry. And then we'll read in the New Testament Paul's emphasis on the same. To root out idols in our lives, he says, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. And then he gives a, a laundry list of sins, at the end of which he says, which is idolatry. So I'll begin in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. And so if you remember, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai here described named Horeb, called Horeb in the passage. And God is, is saying to Moses, or Moses is telling the Israelites about the experience. He's saying, you saw no form. God who is spirit, he didn't show up in any form. He says, therefore, because of this, watch yourselves very carefully. And if you're an underliner, I would underline those words, four words, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol. 
you didn't see God in any form. God is spirit. So don't fashion anything to depict God. Don't make with your hands an image, any image, whether formed like a man or woman or like an animal on the earth or a bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. He's given these things for our delight. These are good gifts. Sun and moon and stars and right and the creatures on the earth and in the water and don't fashion things that are in their image and bow down to them. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace. You don't make any images. I make images, God has said saying, I formed you. I took you out of the furnace, right? Furnace is the thing, iron smelting furnace, by which they would fashion some idols. He's saying, you don't, you don't fashion anything that depicts me. No, I am making you into a people. I'm fashioning you. Took you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. God is fashioning us to be his inheritance. Verse 21, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as in your inheritance. I'll die in this land, I'll not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God... Why? Why don't do this? Why not make idols? Why? For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. I'll pause there for a minute. My guess is that few of us, if any of us, have what is traditionally understood as an idol in our homes. Usually when we hear the word idol, we immediately think, and rightly so, of statues, whether large or small, which are made to represent a particular deity. That's certainly what Moses has in mind here when he prohibits idolatry. Don't make anything, don't make any images, uh, whether images of men or women or animals, fish in the sea, of, of the sun, moon, stars, don't do that. But we should realize that a statue representing a deity is not the only way that idolatry is talked about in the Bible. And it's not the only prohibition against idolatry given. It's, it's not simply a physical prohibition, so to speak. Don't make for yourself a statue. And, and because I guess, I'm guessing none of us have these little these idols in our homes, we're not off the hook is what I'm saying. Here's my best definition of idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something created rather than the creator of all things. And this can obviously involve literally bowing down to a statue, something we've created, fashioned, to represent a deity. That's very common in the ancient world. It's still common in parts of the world, Asia, Africa. But idolatry can also mean simply giving our heart away in devotion to created things, whether people or goals, created things, rather than the creator 
In this sense, interpreting and applying this morning's passage in our modern context is most likely best done metaphorically rather than physically. Again, while no one is bowing to statues of lust or greed, physically bowing to statues in our modern context of lust or greed, there are a lot of people devoting themselves to these types of activities, worshiping them, so to speak, bowing to them, serving them, pursuing them, both of which, lust and greed, are, des- are described as idolatry by the Apostle Paul. Here are Paul's words on the screen. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he gives a little laundry list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and if you give yourself to it, that's idolatry. Put that to death. Be done with that. Do away with that. Have nothing to do with that. Living lives of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, cultivating evil desires, greed, is living as an idolater. Inasmuch as we're serving those things, devoting our lives to them, rather than to our Creator. Frankly, in this way, we can turn anything into an idol. Well-known theologian John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. His point was that our hearts are constantly looking to serve things made by the Creator rather than the Creator Himself. Our time, our hobbies, pets, friendships, family. After first service, someone came up to me and said that when her best friend passed, the Lord convicted her that she had made an idol out of that friendship. And that it was the death of her best friend that actually freed her from that idolatry as the Lord convicted her of how she had pedestalized this person. All of God's great gifts, education, children, our appearance, our popularity, our possessions, we can set on the throne of our lives and begin to bow before them. Every good gift that God's given us to enjoy Our hearts are easily corrupted. We make them into idols. For this reason, Moses says in verse uh, 15, watch yourselves very carefully so that you don't become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol. If there's a takeaway for us this morning, the directive to watch yourselves carefully is most likely it's the point of easiest application, I would say. Clearly, we can live differently this afternoon, this week, in the months ahead by watching ourselves very carefully to see who or what we're serving in life. Why is Moses so urgent? Why the very carefully here? Watch yourselves very carefully. Well, I I think it's probably because idolatry is subtle. It creeps into the most well-intentioned efforts. Most simply put, our hearts are easily led astray. I'll give you an example of an idol with which I have struggled, and I'm a fairly average person, one which I think is a favorite 
among suburbanites. That's the idol of excellence. Who doesn't want to be excellent, right? Excellence is the battle cry of the suburbs. That's why we start our kids in music lessons as early as possible, why we sell our souls, right, to travel sports. Surely God wants us to be excellent in life at whatever we do. Be careful. Watch yourself closely because idolatry is subtle. Nowhere in Scripture do we read that God wants us to be excellent. I looked this week to make sure. <laughs> God wants us to be holy, which is actually, it's, um, it means to be set apart. God's holy because he's set apart from us. He's the creator, we're the creatures. He's uh, morally perfect, we're not. We're called to be holy as he is holy. That is, we're to be, separate ourselves from sin. We're to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. We're to be holy. God wants us to be faithful, which may or may not have any close approximation to excellence. It's true that God wants us to be diligent in stewarding our gifts and talents. God, it's true, also wants us to persevere. He wants us to persevere through adversity and to bear much fruit, but excellence is not a fruit of the Spirit. Excellence is a measure of relative ability as we compare ourselves to one another. For example, we can all agree that Michael Jordan was excellent at one time at basketball. But God hasn't called us to compare ourselves to Michael Jordan. In fact, when I compare myself to Michael Jordan, I get fairly discouraged about playing the sport I love. And when I compare myself to my favorite preachers, I get fairly discouraged in fulfilling my calling. The world compares us to one another, and the world encourages us to compare ourselves to one another. The world hands out grades at school by which we can measure ourselves and our progress and our abilities. Salaries are given at work, measures of relative value based on the market economy. But God hasn't called us to compare ourselves to each other. He hasn't called us to measure ourselves by one another. He hasn't called us to pursue excellence, which quickly becomes a perfectionism. God's called us to be faithful, diligent, persevering, making the most of the gifts and abilities we have. And don't get me wrong, our diligence and our perseverance may make us excellent at what we do. Excellence may be the outcome of our diligence and our perseverance, but it ain't the goal for believers. The goal for believers is faithfulness. And don't get me wrong, when I'm looking for a surgeon or a pilot, I'm hoping they're excellent. So I'm not opposed to excellence. 
And it's certainly possible that excellence and faithfulness might coexist. The two aren't mutually exclusive, but we need to watch ourselves very carefully as it's easy to begin bowing to excellence as our God rather than to God himself. It's easy to lapse into the subtle service of outcomes and accomplishments and achievements and accolades and grades or whatever you're running hard after. In the first service, I noticed there were a couple uh, professional coaches in attendance, and I thought, wow, how hard would that be to be a professional coach and have to set aside excellence and call, call people to diligence and perseverance? And how freeing would that be? For years, I've quizzed with the thought of the scripture that says the battle belongs to the Lord. What's the modern application, I wonder? God calls us into the fight, and we're to fight the good fight, and we're to give our lives in that effort. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a friend. I'm a pastor. I'm to lay down my life. I'm to carry my cross. I'm to leave it all on the field. But the battle belongs to the Lord. He decides outcomes. He decides outcomes. And how freeing is that? And yes, it's certainly true that a job worth doing is worth doing a job worth doing is worth doing well, I was told by my mom. We shouldn't waste our gifts or opportunities by giving little effort in life, but neither should we elevate the pursuit of goals, credentials, accomplishments above faithfulness to our Creator. And this happens when we place the mastery of a subject or a skill, or the achievement of a sales goal, or the completion of a deal, or the acquisition of certain products or prestige, ahead of the cultivation of godly character and the emulation of Christ our Savior. If someone were to look at our family finances, or our family calendar, who or what might they conclude we worship? I'm reminded of the widow's might. It's a scene from the Gospels of Mark and Luke in which Jesus comments on the generosity of a woman who gave her last two coins in offering to the temple. She gave all she had. Many others were there that day in the temple putting in much larger sums of money, but she alone was commended by God as faithful. She didn't give as much as others had given. She gave all she had, though. Her generosity was measured not by comparison to others and the quantities they had given, but by her measure of devotion to God. If someone were to look at our family finances, our family calendars, who or what might they determine we worship? 
Again, I find this to be tremendously freeing, especially within the suburban culture, as we're invited by Christ to carry the easy yoke and the light burden of a comparison-free life. Man, just let that wash over you. The easy yoke and the light burden of a comparison-free life. I'm not your standard. You're not my standard. Our standard is full devotion to Jesus. With the goal that at the end of life, we'd hear, we'd hear well done, thy good and faithful servant. Not well done, thy good and excellent servant. I thank God for the easy yoke and the light burden of a call to faithfulness to Christ. And I would encourage us all to throw off the difficult yoke and the crushing burden, crushing burden of excellence. Here, I'll ask for an amen. A room full of people raising other people. A room full of parents. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know I know my own life. It's crushing if our parenting is fueled by comparison. Amen. Let us be free of that and know that Christ is calling us to faithfulness. He's calling us to faithfulness. Let's get our eyes off of others in what they're doing and achieving and get our ears and eyes attuned to what God is calling us to do, whose God is calling us to be. And as we get our eyes off the cultural definition of excellence and onto faithfulness, we will live lives of greater faith. I wonder if some of us aren't making progress in our faith because we're pursuing excellence. And excellence in its pursuit as an idol is about control. It's not about abandon. Throwing off the heavy yoke of comparison means there will be fewer fleshly activities of competition in our lives by which we are trying to control outcomes. And we'll be putting on the light yoke of faithfulness. It means there'll be more activities of abandon, risk, recklessness, which suburban cultures do not give themselves to. We're about safety and control and maintaining what looks good on the outside. Here's, here's what the Lord's convicting me of. While a job worth doing is worth doing right, it's also true that a job worth doing is worth doing poorly. I'll be really honest with you. When I was in college, I was a horrible public speaker. I've shared this before from the platform. Not to make it all about myself, to make it about Christ. I was class president a couple times in my class at Wheaton College, which meant I had to leave chapel. I was so bad at public speaking, my buddies would come sit on the front row to laugh. 
right, with friends like that, who needs? When I first started preaching, I was so terrified of public speaking, Sherry bought me a handkerchief because people got tired of watching sweat hang off the end of my nose. Phil Cook's here. He remembers those days. Phil's here. <laughs> Phil, one of the best stories he enjoys telling is how crummy a public speaker I was. And look what God has done, or it seems. It, look, it seems. Right, glory to Christ. I share that because there came a time and place where I had to decide whether I would continue to try and maintain my outward appearance or move towards what I believe God was calling me to do. I was terrified about that. There were three primary reasons I, didn't, I resisted going into pastoral ministry. And there was about a three-year window, two or three-year window, in which I was running from God. One of the reasons was I was terrified of public speaking. Because I can't control what you think about me. And because the longer I'm up here, the greater the likelihood I will do or say something stupid. And that overwhelmed me. But that aside, I came to the place where I realized I'm supposed to be doing this. Let's see if anybody will listen. And if no one will listen, that's his problem, not mine. That's the Lord's problem. Idolatry is about control. It's about actually physically, in most case, many cases, physically making a statue and this still happens all over the globe in Asia and Africa. They'll, Buddhists, Hindus, they'll make statues, they'll, they'll bow before it, and they'll pray to the statue, they'll put food in front of the statue, all uh, demonstrating uh, worship, activities aimed at demonstrating worship. But the activities are thought to obligate the deity. It's a quid pro quo experience. I'm going to do this, and you're going to do thus and such. That's not why we are in worship this morning. There's no quid pro quo, it's this then that, with God. God's not called us into idolatry. He's called us into abandon, complete allegiance. He'll not be controlled by us. He doesn't do our bidding. We do his bidding. I got lost. A job worth doing is worth doing well, and a job worth doing is worth doing poorly. Here's what I mean by that. The Lord is worthy of our service, even if we can't do it excellently. Because faithfulness in serving the Lord is always the best thing, regardless of the quality of the service we can perform. Some of us may be holding back in living lives of faith because we have bowed for so long to excellence. But if we only ever attempt what we can do excellently, then think of all the things we will never risk for God. Imagine if we wait to share our faith until we can do it excellently. Some of us will never share our faith. And many of us will never get excellent at sharing our faith because we won't take any reps. 
Or imagine if we waited to teach or to lead or to serve or to give financially until we could do it excellently. Some of us are telling ourselves, well, I'll be excellent in the grace of giving. I'll give excellently when I have more money. No, you won't. All data, and there's hard data on this, we learn to give, we're faithful in the little things, then we're faithful in much. If we tell ourselves, I'll be faithful when I have much, it just doesn't happen. Those who are faithful in the little things get the opportunity to be faithful in much. I think of Glenn Bible Church's desire to launch a second campus. We're going to work hard at it. We'll be diligent. We're going to persevere in it. We're going to work through hard times in it. We won't labor under the burden of perfectionism in it. We have no illusions of excellence at Glenwood Bible Church. In fact, many of the suburban pressures to be excellent are contrary to the gospel's call on our lives. You're here this morning because you want to experience the gospel and you want it to wash over your life. Folks, that happens as we confess our... Uh, what's the opposite of excellence? Uh, what? Really badness. Mediocrity. Well, this called the suburban mediocrity. The gospel washes over us as we... No, we don't confess, we, we confess our imperfection, we confess our sinlessness, we confess his excellence. We're saved by his excellence, his moral perfection. The truth is that a lifestyle of faith in Christ requires that we take risks, that we accept imperfection, and we go on towards maturity in Christ. that we grow in our dependence on God, not our attempt to control outcomes. In fact, a good test for idolatry is to look at where you're trying to control outcomes. That's where I found idols. Where I'm looking for the quid pro quo. I'm going to put in exactly this and I'll get out this. There's, for this reason, there's nothing more humbling than parenting. A good test for faith is to look at where we're living with increased abandon and entrusting the outcomes to God. If there's not any risk-taking in our lives, then we're probably serving an idol at some level. I think of, I think of what Christ calls us to, activities like chastity, Chastity is for those who are not married, they don't participate in sexual activity. They're, they're chaste is one way to say it. The call to chastity in life has been misunderstood in the sexual revolution as an effort at greater control. It's not actually. It's a posture of abandon. I'm abandoning God-given longings to his time and place in, de in design. Modesty. Modesty is, a, is an abandon to God. Immodesty is, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to say things that get people's attention, and I'm going to dress in a way to try and control people's thoughts about me. 
That's immodesty. Modesty is an abandoned to Christ. I'm going to serve Christ, and I'm going to be modest in my, my talk, my dress. I'm going to trust my friendships and my relationships to God's goodness. Fidelity. Fidelity is a posture of abandonment in which we're trusting God in our marriage relationships. And we're going to remain faithful. We abandon ourselves to that call, trusting that God will meet our needs. Not our spouse, but God. Generosity. It's a posture of abandon. Humility. It's a posture of abandon to God's care of us. Pride is a posture of control. Lust is a posture of control. That's why something like 80% of the American population sits down in front of computers and surfs ugly images. They want to control outcomes. It's quid pro quo. I'm, I'm going to do this, and you're going to give me what I want. Chastity and fidelity, that's a life of abandon. Purity. That's a life of risk. Christianity is different than idolatry because our God will not be controlled. He will be our creator and we will be his creatures. We're in worship this morning not to obligate him. He'll not be obligated. We're in worship this morning to celebrate him and what he's already done for us in Christ, and to spur one another on to love and good, good deeds, to cheer each other on. I'll be honest with you, the volume of your singing this morning brought tears to my eyes. I find it convincing. And don't fool yourself. There are others here waiting to be convinced. It's one thing for one person to get up and preach. It's a whole other matter for several hundred people to preach together. We're here to worship the one who is beyond our control. And to give our lives away because he cares for us. It's interesting to note that Moses offers the warning against idolatry because in verse 24, God is a consuming fire and a, and a jealous God. The word picture of this consuming fire is just what it sounds like. It's meant to illustrate the burning fury of God towards those who opt for idols rather than him. If you're familiar with the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, the writer there picks up the theme. He says the same thing, God's a consuming fire. The point is straightforward. Creatures that worship idols, whether physical or metaphorical, lust, greed, will be consumed by the Creator's wrath. You may be thinking, well, isn't jealousy immoral? How could God describe himself as jealous? Without a doubt, jealousy is immoral in, in my life, our lives. We rightly refer to jealousy as the green-eyed monster but that's because our jealousy is always driven by selfish motives. 
And God's jealousy is never driven by selfishness. God dwells, by definition, in unapproachable light. He's perfect in his moral character. He's always good towards us. Ultimately, we can rest assured that God is jealous for our worship because he knows that our worship of him will always result in his glory and our good. God doesn't want our lives. He's calling us out of idolatry. He doesn't want our lives to spin out of control. He wants our lives to be full. I came that you might have life and life to the full. John 10.10, Jesus' own words. He's inviting us out of idolatry. He's telling us to put to death whatever whatever belongs to the earthly nature. He's telling us to destroy the idols or be destroyed because of them. Someone texted me after first service. It's worth reading. Pastor John Foster. All of the gods whatever they are, demand their upkeep. The gods may promise freedom and fulfillment, but in reality, they burden you. They weigh you down. They make you have to maintain them. So here's the question. (laughs) Are you carrying your God, or is your God carrying you? So where's the gospel? Let's see if we can turn the corner in this passage and see the foreshadowing of the gospel. Verse 25, after you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witness against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You'll not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which can't see or hear or eat or smell, but, but, if from there, in the distress of your idolatry, you seek the Lord your God, you'll find him, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in latter days you'll return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He'll not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he conferred to them by oath. Yes, God is a jealous God, but he is a merciful God. Here we see the foreshadowing of the gospel. The bad news is we are sinful and our hearts are idol factories where we seek control and power. We bow and worship to created things rather than our creator. And the good news is that if and when we seek God, if in our distress we see the corruption of our hearts and the damage done by idolatry in our hearts, he is merciful and will receive us. He'll not forget the covenant he has made with us. And in our context, that's the covenant through Christ our Savior. Will you seek him today? Will you turn from the worthless idols? Will you shake off the crushing burden of comparison and serve him wholly and solely? Let me pray for us.
Father, have mercy on us, your people. We confess we're sinful. In our distress, in our idolatry, we cry out for your mercy. Root now the truth of the gospel deeper, more deeply into our hearts. We ask this for your glory and our own good. Amen. We'll stand together and sing. Pam and Steve Bolt are down front. They'd love to pray with you if you want.